The woman's building sat near the entrance of what was known as the Midway. Here's historian Robert Rydell, who we heard from earlier in the show. The Midway, technically the Midway Plaisance at the Chicago Fair, was a mile avenue of fun, um, instruction, frolic, um, all rolled into one. At its heart was a 290-foot-tall revolving wheel named after its inventor, George Ferris. The Ferris wheel, now a carnival staple, was the Midway Star attraction. But wait, there's more! Fairgoers could wander among a series of outdoor museums, ethnological villages that displayed people from around the globe. The term village wasn't just a nice way to gloss over what was, in essence, a kind of human zoo. People lived there. There's an Algerian palace, a Tunis village. The African village was called the Dahomeyan village after Dahomey. Uh, there are Chinese villages, a Javanese village. Uh, there are uh, food concessions. There are breweries. There's a German village, an Austrian village, Japanese bazaar. It's just, uh, it's an extraordinarily lively place. And I guess um, it's usually something that people, if they know about it, they think about what it looked like. But I think it's so important to understand what it sounded like. The music uh, ranged from um, uh, every quarter of the globe, although it's interesting that um, for most commentators, people from um, Africa and the Middle East uh, didn't play music so much as produce sound or noise. Um, music came from the Austrian village and the German village. There are no barriers, uh, so the sounds intermix. The smells from the uh, different uh, pauvres, the, um, the extraordinary um, cuisines from uh, different places on the globe mingle. Uh, it was uh, one of these just surround sound places where one could exercise um, all, of the, all of the senses, from sight to sound to touch, because in these ethnological villages, it was not uncommon for visitors to go up and try um, to actually um, touch, sometimes quite inappropriately, people who were um, deemed savages or primitives. Visitors had the idea they were stepping into a sort of primitive zone or an exotic backward set of cultures. That's Tracy Jean Boisseau again. And so you see lots of things like the hoochie-coochie dance. <laughs> hoochie-coochie dance, what's that? The hoochie-coochie dance was what we would think was fairly close to a striptease, uh, where a woman who was partially dressed would move around a lot of veils and titillate the um, male audience with the display of her body. It was called the Danse du Ventre, um, translated the belly dance. And there's a little theme song for the uh, belly dancers to dance to. And it was called uh, the Hoochie Coochie. Well, now that you've mentioned that, you know, you're going to have to hum it. <laughs> well, uh, I, you, you probably don't want me to, but it goes something like this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, my humming is not so good, but I think you get the drift. This was a dance that was um, imagined as representing uh, all of the Middle East in its exotic Orientalist splendor. And it was performed by several different women, actually, but they were often imagined as one woman who was referred to as Little Egypt. The Hoochie Coochie dancers were actually the entertainment at the Algerian village. And they were a huge hit, much to the annoyance of onlookers at the nearby woman's building. 
if you sat on the rooftop deck of the women's building, which millions of women over the course of the five or six months of the fair did, you had a view not only to the court of honor and the white city, but in the other direction, you had a view directly over the midway and smack in the middle of that was the temple of beauty where 40 young women from presumably 40 different nations were all doing a version of the hoochie coochie dance. And so there was lots of conversation and lots of criticism about sort of the terrible salacious things that were happening in their sight line <laughs> on the midway. How interesting that the woman's building, one of these um, quite large neoclassical buildings, is put um, right at it. It hinges the midway um, to the white city, as if um, white middle-class women are really supposed to be the arbiters between something called civilization and something called savagery. Rydell says the scandalous, entertaining midway was supposedly educational. One of the chief purposes of the fair was to show the rest of the world, um, here meaning New York City, that Chicago was as civilized as any East Coast city and as certainly as any Parisian capital. So um, civilization, culture, both spelled with a capital C, were animating, animating um, uh, drives. So the Midway itself was not um, necessarily considered a primary part of the fair at the beginning. But as it became clear that the fair was going to cost a lot of money to put on, it was clear that these sorts of exhibits, these villages and these concessions with food and beer um, actually were money makers. So the Midway takes form um, in, a, in a curious way because the exposition directors did not want it to detract from capital C culture, capital C civilization. They wanted the Midway to augment it and to be an educational uh, strip, to be a kind of outdoor ethnological museum. So they affixed it in the exposition catalog uh, and gave it a department uh, letter, Department M, which was also the category in which anthropology was placed. Hmm. So it's sort of adding a humanity component to this larger cultural experience. Well, it's a humanity component, but it's it's a humanity with a particular um, vision attached to it, in particular hierarchical ways that reinforced uh, dominant ways of, um, of thinking about people from foreign colonies and even internal colonies like American Indian reservations. Hmm. And how did they communicate that particular message about ranking peoples? Well, let me come at that question in a couple of ways. Um, one of the ways that this message got communicated was through the organization of Midway shows. So at one extreme, remember the Midway is a mile long, so at one extreme of the Midway, the farthest from the white city, uh, you have uh, the Dahomeyan village, the American Indian villages, and then one could um, make one's way towards the white city, passing the Austrian village, passing uh, the Middle Eastern villages, the German village. So in a sense, as the newspapers described it, one could follow the spiral of evolution from its most primitive oh, and barbaric towards civilization, heading towards the white city. So that's one way that this um, uh, message gets conveyed, and the other is contractual. 
And so for the Dahomeans, the Africans uh, who perform at the fair, uh, their contract um, very explicitly states that they are to perform as savages. And when it becomes apparent um, in the eyes of the concessionaire, who is a French um, uh, a French man of uh, sort of a dubious background, um, when uh, his concession isn't making quite as much money as he thinks it should, um, he concludes that it's because his performers aren't being, in quotes now, savage enough. So he mm. uh, basically forces them to drink beer from the uh, brewery next door on the other side. So staged, carefully staged lessons about this supposed change in civilization. Oh, yes, yes. They're, they're very carefully staged. And at the same time, it's uh, just so interesting to see how that careful staging sometimes collapses under its own weight. Um, because uh, the people who are there to perform, um, the, the entrepreneurs and the fair managers might have seen them as, as specimens, but the people who are there to perform um, are actually pretty adept at um, counteracting the intentions of mm -hmm. fair organizers, and that gets to be a pretty interesting story as well. Well, so what did some of those people do? Well, and I'll just stick with the African village for a moment. So every uh, every day, the um, uh, so-called denizens of the Midway would organize a, an ethnological parade, and they would start at the far end of the Midway and march towards the White City. And um, as uh, several scholars have, have noted, um, the um, Africans would, as they paraded, would chant in there. Um, their own languages, and they would sing songs. And um, there actually happened to be someone from West Africa, um, a European, who claimed that he understood what the West Africans were saying, and it was something along the lines of, well, please come to Dahomey, and we'll slit your white throats. So the midways and these representations are just they're remarkably interesting and remarkably complex and really um, underscore the importance of, um, of, of why historians study these cultural representations and why they matter so much. It's so, it's so fascinating because the, the mix of um, entertainment and really deep statements um, is such a it's such a strange brew of things to yoke together, and, and yet, obviously, it's a strong combination that pulls people. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, it, um, and it's going to continue with um, subsequent fairs. It's not, um, remember, there's a tradition of fairs um, uh, before Chicago, and there's certainly a tradition of fairs that comes after Chicago. So by locating the midway with really a lot of um, somewhat maybe really sleazy um, performances and calling them ethnological villages and you can go watch the hoochie coochie dance and say oh no i'm actually i'm, <laughs> I'm going i'm going there to learn about I'm different cultures I'm, culture. I'm, I'm yes. studying the culture by actually <laughs> suggesting that the midway could have this higher nobler educational purpose um, is terrifically important because it basically sets in motion an argument you're going to hear across the 20th century that education of course um, can and should be entertaining well, that actually leads me to maybe my last question here, which is, what would you say is the legacy of the Midway? Oh, my. Uh, the legacy of the Midway is, um, it's not a leg it's not a single legacy. There are multiple legacies um, uh, tied to the power of uh, media, and this is a prototype of mass media, how it can inform the way people think. And then maybe the most compelling legacy for your listeners might well be in the context of what is about to be built pretty much right where that midway plays on, it's intersected with the White City. 
And what is about to be built, I think everyone in Chicago will know, um, is uh, President Obama's library. And so if you think about um, the Midway and you think about the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition as this um, uh, vehicle for disseminating some really quite um, horrible ideas about African-Americans and people of color around the world, I think it's really a... Uh, quite a tribute to the legacy of resistance that uh, the Obama Library is going to be um, uh, right where the white city once stood. Robert Rydell is a historian at Montana State University. We also heard from Tracy Jean Boisseau. She's a historian at Purdue University and co-editor of Gendering the Fair, Histories of Women and Gender at World's Fairs. 